0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Dwayne. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, it's great to see all of you here this morning uh, for this first Sunday of Advent. Um, we're gonna jump right in. Um, we're talking about salvation this morning. Um, that's a pretty big topic and a pretty big word. Uh, we use it a lot. We heard it a lot in uh, the the songs that we were singing. Words about salvation, Jesus being our savior, our redemption. Um, And I want to dive in a little bit on that this morning. Um, It's actually a good topic to be talking about on the first Sunday of Advent, because as Keith mentioned earlier, Advent is a time when we are expectantly awaiting the arrival of Jesus. And uh, Jesus, actually the name Jesus from the Hebrew Yeshua, actually means Jehovah brings salvation, So the idea that Jesus is coming and Jesus is bringing salvation, Jesus has come and has brought salvation, it's sort of a great thing that we're talking about today. We're going to start by looking at um, a passage in the earliest parts of Luke. You're used to hearing the Christmas story around this time of year, Uh, and we're actually going to talk a little bit not about uh, the birth of Jesus exactly, but something that happened a little bit before the birth of Jesus. If you remember the story of uh, Mary, who finds out that she is with child. One of the first things that she does is she goes to her cousin Elizabeth, and she talks with Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is also pregnant at the same time. Interestingly, Elizabeth and uh, Elizabeth's husband, Zachariah, uh, were visited by an angel similarly and said, oh, you're going to have a baby, and Zachariah said, hey, that doesn't make any sense because I'm really old, And so the angel basically closed his mouth, and he wasn't able to talk for the rest of the pregnancy. Um, Probably sounds like a dream for some of you who actually have been pregnant before, that your husband doesn't get to talk to you at all until, you know, the baby is born. Um, So what happens in that story is before Jesus is born, uh, um, Elizabeth has her baby, uh, and that baby's name is John. And John shows up later in the story. We call him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He's the one who baptizes Jesus eventually uh, in the Jordan River. And so this baby is born, and Zechariah just all of a sudden gets his speech back as the baby is born, and he names him John, as the angel had told him to do. And one of the first things that Zechariah does is speak a blessing, a prophecy about this child, John, who was going to lead the way for the Savior. So we're going to read this prophecy, this, this sort of poem of Zechariah that he, he speaks after John is born. And I want to mention that it's, it's not exactly um, something that we necessarily... Uh, The the language may not be language that is immediately applicable to our current modern situation, but I want you to listen through this prophecy. Listen to all the language of salvation that you hear in this uh, prophecy. I'm going to see if I can get this back, Keith. Yeah, good. Looks like I can. Okay. So, in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 68, this is what Zechariah says. He's just been blessed by this child who he's been told by an angel is going to lead the way for the chosen one, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. There's that redemption language, salvation language. He has raised up a mighty Savior For us, in the house of his servant David. He's talking about the coming of Jesus who comes from the line of King David. But here is the idea of a savior, right? As he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from old, from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So let's pause here for a second. This is one idea of salvation that we see throughout scripture. The idea that salvation what it means, we, again, we talk about salvation a lot, but we don't always necessarily get the full breadth of the definition of what this is about. In the Old Testament, and even up until this point in Scripture, salvation, there was an aspect of it that was about being rescued from your enemies. So, I'm going to use the whiteboard a little bit. I know, it's unusual for me, but I figure if Keith can do it. Wait. Wait. That's the wrong marker. He told me to use this one. So, I'm going to use the whiteboard. So, this idea, on the one hand, is that salvation is the idea of rescue, okay? So, being rescued from your enemies. Now, in the Old Testament, this was a nationalistic idea. The idea was that the nation of Israel had enemies. Uh, There were other nations and other countries that kept beating them up and kept Taking them captive and kept treating them bad. And so they had this hope, this national hope that, that the salvation of, of God would come and would, res- would basically protect them, rescue them from their enemies, okay? So this idea of rescue is really rooted in the idea of Israel. Is that right? Yeah, Israel. So the idea of rescue is a nationalistic idea that has to do with with Israel. And then Jesus comes along. And so Jesus actually comes, and I'm using, this is the Greek symbol, the Greek letter chi, which has for centuries been the symbol for Christ. So that whole idea of People abbreviating Christmas as Xmas. Don't be offended by that because X actually means Christ. It's great. So, rescue is about Israel, and then Christ comes and transforms this idea, and he talk, begins talking about this thing called the kingdom. Okay? So, he, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, and that is actually the rescue. It's not about rescuing the nation of Israel, it's about the kingdom of God coming into being. For all mankind. And so Jesus teaches us about the kingdom, and that really leads us to this idea that in the kingdom there is going to be justice and righteousness and rightness and goodness and love. So so the idea of rescue, we find it throughout Scripture. Salvation is about rescue of God's people, which was about Israel, but Christ kind of changes the narrative and we begin talking about the kingdom of God, which is a place where justice is happening. So in this sense, salvation is a real physical, literal thing, a thing that is implemented among and in the midst of people people who uh, uh, work for justice and people who try to make rightness and people who try to love others and people who try to, to care for the neediest, right? This, it's a very, very real, physical, tangible thing. But let's keep going because that's not the only way to view uh, uh, salvation. Oh, thanks. So further on, I skipped a few of the, the lines in this, but further on in this blessing, uh, Zechariah is talking now to his child, John. He says, and you, child, Will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord. In other words, he's going he's to go ahead of Jesus. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. So that's another. Way we talk about and describe salvation. And that one may actually be a little bit more familiar to us. We talk about salvation as being forgiven of our sins, right? The the forgiveness of sins is, is a big part of that idea. So, on this side of it, we're going to put forgiveness over here. Because this is another dimension that we want to talk about the forgiveness of sins. To understand the meaning of this, we also have to look at the Old Testament and what this meant. In Old Testament ideology, okay? So for the Hebrew people, the idea of forgiveness of sins, it goes back to the idea of the covenant. So there's a covenant that takes place in the earliest chapters of Genesis, the very beginning of the entire Bible narrative. There's a guy by the name of Abraham, and Abraham uh, basically makes a covenant with God. God comes to him and says, Abraham, I will be your God if you will be my people and all of your descendants will be blessed and the whole world will be blessed through you if you will follow me and, and, and be my people. The covenant idea in, in ancient Near East, it was basically a covenant was an agreement between any two tribes or two families. It was sort of a sharing, a mutual joining of resources that said, okay, we'll help you and you'll help us. Like if I was, in, if I was the head of a tribe and then someone else was the head of a tribe and we wanted to defend ourselves against other tribes, we might say, let's join our resources, and what I have is yours, and what you have is mine, and it was a coming together, and that's the idea that Abraham makes this covenant with God, that it was a two-sided agreement that, that, that Abraham and his descendants were supposed to keep part of the bargain, and God was supposed to keep his part of the bargain, and here's where sins come in and why forgiveness is important, because, because Abraham's descendants could never keep their end of the bargain with God. We see in the story of the Bible, the narrative of Scripture over and over again, that the Hebrew people, the descendants of Abraham, kept falling short. They kept disobeying, or they kept following other idols, or they kept doing things that that fell outside of the covenant. So when an Old Testament Scripture, or in in this case, this is New Testament, but but he's looking back to the prophets of old, Zechariah is saying, we need forgiveness of our sins, and that's what the Savior is going to come to do. He's talking about that idea of breaking the covenant, and we need that forgiveness to restore the covenant relationship. So forgiveness was, is, and always was about the covenant. Okay, so forgiveness was about the covenant, and then, as you might expect, Christ comes into the picture, and then we see something new and exciting happening, and we see in the Gospels that Jesus dies on a cross, and what the Scriptures tell us is meaningful about that, is that Jesus actually paid the cost for all of this covenant stuff. Jesus fulfilled. He even says in the Gospels, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. The law is kind of what kept people on track until Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he said, I fulfilled it. Check that box. Now everybody can enjoy the relationship that Abraham was supposed to have with God, this covenant relationship, right? So Christ comes and we see the cross changing this idea, and now we have relationship. I'm not very good at writing on the whiteboard, I realize. So so we have this dimension... Of salvation, which is really about rescue, and it's a physical dimension about the tangible things in our world that we can do that bring justice. And then we have this dimension of salvation, which is about forgiveness and ultimately is about relationships, so the spiritual dimension of, of salvation. So we have a physical dimension of salvation, we have a spiritual dimension of salvation. But there's a third dimension that I want to talk about. And the third dimension is actually. This whole series that we're doing for Advent, and you'll hear Keith talk next week and the next week about third ways. What is a third way? We're going to use this weird language that some of you may be familiar with, some of you may not. A third way is is basically a radical alternative to an otherwise seemingly binary choice. A third way is saying, well, it's not left, it's not right, it's something that is bigger and all-encompassing. So people might talk about, well, I'm a conservative or, well, I'm a liberal. Well, a third way is is to say we're going to just transcend all of that right and left liberal conservative language and be something else entirely. It's not a compromise. It's not a centrist view. A third way is truly a radical alternative. And what we find in Scripture is that there are so many Radical alternatives to the way that we normally think about things. And I think the way we think about salvation in this way is a two-dimensional thinking. And we're going to introduce a third dimension and bring us into a three-dimension, a 3D experience of salvation. So the last line of this blessing that Zechariah gives, this prophecy. Zechariah says, By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Into the way of peace. Now I'm going to talk for the rest of the time about this concept of peace. Specifically, an Old Testament word that we find throughout Scripture, and that word is shalom. And shalom is not just peace the way we would Uh, conceptualized peace it's bigger than that it is a wholeness it is a much more full experience of rightness than simply a lack of conflict but first I want to talk a little bit about how mind-blowing it is to think this way in three dimensions I keep talking about two dimensions and three dimensions because this is just a really fun thing right so we we, we do live in a three-dimensional world, but I want you to think about how much of what we do is actually two-dimensional. Get out a piece of paper and take a pen and try to draw a picture. You're drawing in two dimensions. The thing that always makes me laugh is we, we are in our, our cars, and we, we put on a map, and our map is, is t- entirely two-dimensional, right? Because we're only thinking about dimensions, or like driving directions on this plane. We're not thinking about this axis. Like, Google doesn't say, turn left, then turn upwards. Like, we don't, we don't get to access that third dimension when we're driving. And here's another thing that's always driven me crazy. I love, I love Star Wars. I'm a big fan of Star Wars. I, I, was, uh, I was four years old when the first movie came out. Um, I was seven years old when Empire Strikes Back came out. And I was ten years old when Return of the Jedi happened and the, those cute little Ewoks were everywhere. I had the toys. I had everything. It defined my childhood. So we're going to use a Star Wars illustration here because it's really important to understand three-dimensional thinking. Now, you've all seen those pictures that are in 3D. So I want you all to do this. I want you to squint your eyes, and I want you to turn your head slightly. Never. No, I'm just kidding. This is totally not in 3D. This is only in two dimensions. I'm just joking. So this, the, the point of this picture is not that it's in 3D, but the point is, has it ever driven you crazy when you watch movies about space, they're all flying like there's an up and a down? Th- th- these look like airplanes, right? In space, there's no gravity, there's no up, there's no down. They could go this way or that way or this way, but we still all think in in two dimensions. What does that have to do with salvation? Really nothing. I just wanted to talk about Star Wars for a second because that's really fun. No, the idea is we have to expand our thinking. If we're going to talk about three-dimensional thinking of salvation, we have to understand that these are both part of it, but it's got to be bigger than that. Uh, There's an author named Rob Bell, Quick plug for our book cart over here. We have three of Rob Bell's books over here. Um, If you don't know about our book cart, it's great. It's a free lending library. There's really awesome books over here. You can go over, there's instructions to how to check out a book and and we don't even charge for late fees or anything. It's really great. Um, Rob Bell wrote a book called Velvet Elvis and in that book, he says this, we understand peace to be the absence of conflict, right? If I asked you to define peace, that's probably what you would say. But the Hebraic understanding of shalom And this is the Old Testament word shalom in Hebrew. The Hebraic understanding of shalom is far more than just the absence of conflict or strife. Shalom is the presence of the goodness of God. It's the presence of wholeness or completeness. So I think that peace is the third dimension of salvation. Shalom is the all-encompassing third dimension of shalom. Walter Brueggemann, in his book, Living Toward a Vision, which is a book all about the idea of Shalom, he says that Shalom is the persistent biblical vision of joy, well-being, harmony, and prosperity. It is a dream of God that resists all our tendencies to division, hostility, fear, drivenness, and misery. That is a really big idea. If Shalom is that big and shalom is this third dimension, the, the, the ultimate expression of salvation, then we need to start redefining some things. That's what I think. I think shalom means making people whole and not just saving souls. Now, I grew up in a tradition where saving souls was important evangelism and witnessing and getting people to convert, uh, getting people to pray the sinner's prayer, uh, getting people to walk down the aisle while we all sang the hymn, Just As I Am. I mean, that was a regular weekly event in my childhood church, right? But it's bigger than that. I remember one of the first times this sort of clicked for me. Uh, I had been a youth pastor, in, actually in the, in the church I grew up in, and uh, there was a girl uh, in that church, who was in junior high and early high school when I was a youth pastor at that church. Um, sweet Kid uh, came from a family who had been in, in that church for a very long time, and she had been active and participating and had, had, had made a profession of faith early in her childhood, as many do in, in a Baptist church. You might do it at a very young age. Um, and, and I really liked her, and uh, when I moved away and started uh, doing some other things, I stayed in touch a little bit, and I remember um, chatting with her. Maybe I was I was back home again, and we were chatting about stuff. and And the new youth pastor that had come in to that church basically had told her, had asked her, "Well, do you remember when you you know made your decision to become a Christian?" And she said, "No, I don't really remember. It was so long ago. I was so young." And he was like, "Well, if you don't remember, it probably wasn't real. It probably didn't happen. So we we got to make sure we do this again." And so she, like, made a profession of faith as an older teenager and was, I think, even got baptized again. And I remember thinking to myself, that's, that's crazy. That, like, that's, that's the idea that that's what the most important thing we have to do for this teenage girl who is facing all so many other things that, that teenagers face in their life and, and a youth pastor should be helping them to, to make themselves whole and to figure out the complexities and the nuances of life in America as a teenager and how to be a faithful follower of Jesus. But instead, the most important thing is do you remember the moment you said yes to Jesus? Like I think we've got to get beyond that. We've got to get to the point where we're talking about making people whole. We've got to get to the point where we're more concerned about the entirety of their being than just their eternal soul destination. And again, it's not a rejection of the saving of souls, right? It's important for people to follow Jesus and to become part of that and for that to be a part of our definition of salvation, but it's so much bigger. It's in 3D, guys. It's not two-dimensional. So I think shalom means making people whole and not just saving souls. I also think shalom means creating an embracing all-inclusive community, not fighting a culture war. I remember uh, just a few weeks ago, actually, I was in the car with Elise that we were listening to. um, I guess it was the radio. No, we don't listen to the radio anymore. Whatever. A song came on our whatever streaming device we were using. There's a song by an artist named Charlie Puth, and he's doing a duet with James Taylor, who I love. I love James Taylor. And so we're listening to this song, and these lyrics were pretty amazing. And so um, the song is called Change, I think. And the song goes like this. Why are we looking down on our sisters and brothers? Isn't love all that we got? Don't we know everyone's got a father and a mother? The day we know we're all the same, together we can make that change. Look around, there are too many of us crying and not enough love to go around. What a waste. Another day, another good one dying. But I know the world will change the day we know we're all the same. Why can't we just get along? If loving one another is wrong, then how are we supposed to get close to each other? We got to make that change. Yeah, why can't we just get along? (laughs) And Elisa turned to me and said, why is it that people who aren't even Christians seem to get it right? And out of nowhere, I don't know why I said this, I just blurted out, because Jesus is winning. It made me think, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and everybody's praising him with the palm branches, and and people are saying, hey, do you think we need to make these people shut up? And Jesus says, if they don't do it, even the rocks will cry out. I think that too many times... We get lost and caught up in fighting culture wars, in saying, no, we have to define what it means to be a Christian, and that behavior is not okay, and that kind of lifestyle is not okay, and that kind of person is not okay, because this is what it means to be in my box as a Christian. But salvation is bigger than that. Salvation is saying, why can't we love everybody? Why can't we create an all-inclusive community? Why can't we make people whole and love them the way Jesus would love them? Jesus didn't draw lines, he loved the prostitutes he loved the tax collectors he brought them into his his life he went to their houses for dinner we've got to think in three dimensions salvation is more than just fighting a culture war so i think shalom which is salvation means healing our broken world and not just escaping to another one we love the idea of escape We love the idea of, okay, I'm going to become a Christian so I can go to heaven when I die. And until I die, I'm just going to keep my eyes closed. Because I don't know what to do between now and then. But I know that I'm going to go to heaven someday. It makes me think of the movie Saving Private Ryan. If you haven't seen it yet, I'm not, well, I might spoil it for you. Because if you haven't seen it yet, come on. It's been, what, 20 years? So... Don't you hate it when people are like, don't spoil it for me? Look, if you haven't seen it yet. Okay, so Saving Private Ryan is about a, a guy named Private Ryan who's, who's fighting in World War II, and he's the last surviving child of his mom and dad at home, and so the government decides we need to get this kid out of the thick of battle, and we need to pull him out of the, the, the war, and we need to send him back home. So, so all of his brothers didn't end up dying, you know, all the, whole, all the children. So the whole point of the movie is this small group of, of people led by Tom Hanks' character, they have to go into war and they have to get Private Ryan and they have to get him out safely. I know some people who think that that's the goal of the Christian life. That Jesus comes in and he's going to save us like Private Ryan. He's going to pull us out of this crazy, terrible battlefield that is wor- the world that we know and he's going to take us home safely to heaven. Yes, and. Yes, and. Heaven's real. I believe that. I believe that those of us who follow Jesus, when we die, we're gonna experience eternity with God in heaven, but that doesn't mean that we just close our eyes and don't pay attention to what's going on right now in front of us. We have to begin to try to bring God's kingdom into being. Salvation is about this idea of kingdom, about justice, about making things right, right here, right now. That's shalom. We can't talk about salvation as shalom if we're not willing to bring the shalom into the world right now. So let's talk a little bit about shalom. I want to show you what it looks like in the Old Testament. Again, not exactly our modern situation. But remember, this is an ancient text, guys. This is thousands of years old. And here is what, uh, here's what the prophet Ezekiel says to God's people, that God is saying to his people. God says, I will make a covenant of shalom with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest in safety. I know that's your primary concern, guys, really, Like, if God could do anything for me, it would be to let me sleep in the forest in safety. Like, that is my number one prayer most every day. Um, No, kidding, right? But the idea is you have to sort of contextualize this. See the safety that is happening here. What shalom means for ancient people is to be able to not be afraid, to be safe, to be able to be secure. It goes on to say, I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. You see provision. You see safety. You see blessing. You see provision. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. There's freedom in Shalom. They will no longer be plundered by the nations nor, the wild, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of nations. The idea of shalom in the Old Testament is cosmic. It's big. It's everything. It's safety. It's security. It's provision. It's peace from, from conflict. It's all of it. That is shalom. Shalom. And that is what salvation is about. That is what Jesus came to bring, the shalom of salvation. Going back to Walter Brueggemann, he points this out. He says, shalom is a well-being that exists in the very midst of threats. So not a Saving Private Ryan kind of extraction from those threats. It is well-being of a material, physical, historical kind Salvation in the midst of trees and crops and enemies in the very places where people always have to cope with anxiety, struggle for survival, and deal with temptation. Those things are real for us. Anxiety, stress, temptation, grief, loss. Shalom is bringing wholeness. Shalom works against those things to bring a completeness and a fullness and a wholeness. That is what salvation means. Jesus came to bring that kind of shalom. In the Psalms it says, Turn from evil and do good. Seek shalom and pursue it. Notice how it doesn't say, Sit there and wait for shalom to happen. I feel like that's an important lesson. Because I think a lot of us think, Oh yeah, Jesus did come to bring shalom, So why don't I have shalom? We have to seek it. We have to pursue it. It's something that we have to work for and strive for. Speaking of seeking seeking the shalom, Jeremiah, this is a great backstory here. I have to explain this. Many of you may be familiar with a verse in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, which says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for shalom. I bet you didn't know that was the word because in English it doesn't say that. It says plans to prosper you and not to harm you. The word is shalom. Plans for Shalom. But the trick to that verse is that that verse came to the Israelites while they were in captivity in Babylon. Babylon was the most powerful city on earth and it conquered Israel and and the Babylonians took all of the Israelites and they carted them back to Babylon where they lived in slavery. So this is the message that God gives to the Israelites in captivity in Babylon. And incidentally, Babylon throughout Scripture is always code for the most evil worldly of kingdoms. We, we, we read about Babylon in Revelation and other places, and Babylon is always symbolic for the most evil, terrible nations on earth. And here's what God says to his people while they are in captivity in Babylon. He says to the Israelites, seek the shalom and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Are you getting that? God didn't just say, okay, put your head in the sand, keep yourself quiet. I'm going to rescue you from Babylon. Don't bother the Babylonians. You just keep to yourself. You keep doing your own thing. No, he says, seek shalom for the city where you are living in exile. Babylon can be the most despicable, most awful, most terrible, most pagan kingdom in the world, but if we are living in it, God tells us, seek the shalom of that city. So, for those of us who live in a country we feel maybe sometimes is broken, guess what God is asking us to do, I think? He's saying, seek the shalom, because if there's shalom where you live, there will be shalom for you. We don't pledge our allegiance to the nation. We pledge our allegiance to Jesus and the kingdom of God. But while we live in a nation that may or may not be secular or evil or whatever, we are to seek the shalom of that place. It's powerful stuff. Here's a fun song. I'm a professor of choral music, so I read this and I all of a sudden, I, obviously, the Handel's Messiah pops into my head. For unto us a child is born, I won't sing the whole thing, Um, but it's for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, this is a prophecy in Isaiah talking about the coming of Christ, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom, yes, peace, we translate it as peace, and you've read it all your life as Prince of Peace, but when the Old Testament says Jesus is the Prince of Peace, it says he is the Prince of Shalom. He is the bringer of shalom. And guess what? The shalom that he brings, the government and shalom he brings, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. We know, of course, that what the Old Testament people thought may have been the establishment of an actual literal kingdom with Jesus on the throne, we understand that to be God's kingdom right? The idea that Jesus has established God's kingdom and he rules in our hearts. And guess what? He's asking us to be the ones who bring that shalom. He's asking us to be the ones who extend that reign of righteousness, that rule forever and ever. That's us. That's our job. That's what we do. It continues through the New Testament. In Acts, there's a a guy named Peter. He's talking with a guy named Cornelius that God has sort of sent him into this house of Cornelius. And it's a fascinating story because it's the first time that the message of Jesus is is given to someone who's not a Jew. Cornelius and his family were the first non-Jews to actually hear this message of Jesus. And here's one of the things Peter says. He says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. Now, when someone in the New Testament says peace, the New Testament's written in Greek, so we don't get the word shalom. But a New Testament writer like Luke, when he writes the Greek word irene, he's thinking of shalom because he has studied the Hebrew Scriptures because he understands it to be that. And in fact, many of them may have even read the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and so the words, we could consider them to be somewhat interchangeable. So as Luke, who's writing this, is quoting what Peter is saying, the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is bringing the shalom, and he does it through us. And in Ephesians, Paul says, for he himself, talking about Jesus, he himself is our peace. Jesus is our shalom. And then finally, I want to get to this, and we'll finish out with this idea of the gospel. But uh, this is from the passage of Scripture many of us may know um, about the, the armor of God. Maybe you've, if you've heard this, about putting on the helmet of um, salvation, right? The breastplate of righteousness and like all those things, right? Well, well guess what? Guess what? The, the feet, the shoes, that is the gospel of peace. The gospel message is a message of shalom, The gospel message is a message of wholeness. To share the gospel means to make others whole. To make our communities whole. To make our world whole. That's shalom. That is the gospel. So, if we think about salvation in three dimensions, if if the third dimension of salvation is shalom and the gospel truly is the gospel of peace or the gospel of shalom, then the gospel, or shalom, is telling someone about the love of Jesus. Absolutely. And it's also loving those who are broken and working to preserve and restore their dignity and humanity. That's also the gospel. So when you go to share the gospel, yeah, tell people about the love of Jesus. But why is it that some Christians feel like they have to make people feel terrible first? You know what I'm saying? I remember when I was in college, I was in the South, so maybe sort of to be expected, we had an itinerant evangelist who always found himself in front of the student union, standing on a bench so he could be elevated above everybody else, and he would shout at us as we walked by calling us names like sinner, and he had a Bible in his hand, and he was trying, I think, I want to give the guy the benefit of the doubt, I think his intentions were good, he was trying to to share the love of Jesus, but the way he thought he had to do it was by convincing all of us of how terrible we were first. So then we're like, oh, you're right, I am so terrible, I must need this, this salvation that you speak of, please tell me, right? I don't think we have to make people feel terrible to tell them about the love of Jesus. We can make them whole, we can restore them, We can bring shalom into their lives. I think the gospel, shalom, I think it is advocating for justice within our broken systems and structures. I think our systems and structures of of our judicial system, our education system, our economic system, I think there's a lot of brokenness in that. And I think shalom, I think bringing shalom is about Advocating for justice in those areas, in those ways. But guess what? It's also about accepting and loving those who oppress you and those who oppose you. It's a big part of bringing shalom. We can't just be advocates for change without loving the people in front of us. And sometimes the people in front of us are yelling really loudly and they're yelling things that are the opposite of what we want to hear. Sometimes the people in front of us that need to be loved are the very people who are oppressing us or causing, causing the brokenness and causing the strife. And I think we are called just like the Israelites in Babylon to seek shalom in those contexts. I do think the gospel, the shalom of God, is about eternal life with God. I think it's about the forever and ever living life with God in all eternity. But I also think that the gospel is about an eternal kind of life, not eternal everlasting life only, but an eternal kind of life that begins right here, right now. And a life that seeks to transform our present reality. So I guess in that scenario, Private Ryan would have done everything he could to stop the war, right? And not just be rescued and go home. Shalom, salvation, salvation, It's what Jesus brings. It's why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus has come. Emmanuel, God with us, the Prince of Peace, he has come to bring shalom. But he's not going to do it without us. It's up to you. It's up to me. We have to bring the shalom of God into existence where it doesn't exist already. We have to be the peace. We have to be the shalom of Jesus.